Thank you, Marcus. Good morning, everybody. I'm so glad you're here today. I'm so thankful for those who are joining us online right now. We appreciate you uh, watching with us. A couple things I want to mention is, first of all, is J.T. Vrieswick here? J.T., are you here this service? Okay. I may have missed him in the first. But in any case, J.T. Uh, was here for two years. He's been serving for some time now down in Laramie. And uh, he's, he's soon to be going to Central Asia. So if you would remember uh, J.T., in your prayers. Also, uh, just want to mention to you that the Elder Board spent about an hour and a half this past Tuesday night talking about the state of the state in regard to coronavirus. And uh, we are taking it very seriously. There is a section now here in our church for those who would prefer to wear masks and be with those who are wearing masks. Uh, we are asking people to take a great deal of responsibility on themselves in this. If you shouldn't be here, uh, that's why we're providing uh, streaming services uh, so just be careful with that, and uh, for now we're going to continue with, uh, with what we have been doing. So just want to make you aware of what's going on. And speaking of coronavirus, let me ask you something. Have you learned anything from it? I'm glad to hear yes. Uh, there's a number of, I believe, aspects of our life that have been highlighted because of this coronavirus. Like perhaps how much you may value being part of a community of people to be with, how fragile the economy is, how fragile our health is. Some of you have mentioned how much you've enjoyed being with family more, being quarantined with them. Some of you have mentioned how challenging it's been maybe being with family since you've been quarantined with them. But will these create a lasting impact? There was a clinical psychologist uh, that, that approached that subject by the last name of Spancer and wrote an article about this. He's a little cynical, though, about our ability to change. He says that we respond strongly to and powerfully with our immediate current context. When we have $1, we learn the value of having $2. When we have $100, having $2 is a nightmare. Our current context dominates our experience. The memory of the past may remain, but its hold on our immediate actions and attentions loosens markedly over time. He says, this is why we may predict that however grave its social impact, the coronavirus pandemic will eventually become a memory. Most of the lessons of coronavirus, the clarified priorities, the acute awareness of life's fragility, the appreciation of simple social pleasures... Those grand promises we make to ourselves when our, our taken-for-granted assumptions are temporarily, temporarily violated will fade with time, becoming mere tales of context past, and will go back to being short-sighted, self-focused, conflicted, and as mired in trivial preoccupations as ever. Only by being aware of our default mode do we gain the possibility of subverting it? Now, you may agree or disagree with parts of that, but something I think we can all agree on is that we have a tendency to forget. I can find myself standing in one end of the house wondering why it is that I came to this end of the house. I'm glad I'm not alone in that. We forget little things. We forget, we forget bigger things like birthdays and anniversaries. And then if we're not careful, we can be, become very forgetful of just who our source ultimately is of peace and hope 
and rest. I know that whenever I was going into seminary, we didn't know how we were going to pay for it. And uh, my wife and I, we just decided to quit our jobs. We were working in Maryland, and we transitioned to Dallas, Texas with a heart full of hope and faith that God would provide as God would provide. And, and he did. Every cent, two master's degrees, no loans. By the grace of God, he provided everything. But at the end of seminary, I find myself absolutely terrified about what I thought the future may hold. Now, how, where did the amnesia happen? I mean, all that study and theology should have prepared me. But I forgot. You see, this is why we must remember and celebrate those things that have already occurred. That's the topic I want to talk about this morning. Why should we celebrate the past? Why should we celebrate the past? As Sam mentioned before, that song, Come Thou Fount, was inspired by the passage that I'm about to read this morning. 2 Samuel will start at verses, uh, will be in chapter 7, start at verse 5, and read through verse 17. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 5 through 17. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. I'm sorry, it's 1 Samuel, not 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 5 through 17. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for, for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzvah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. You may be seated. We're continuing again this morning, uh, this series from the book of 1 Samuel, people who are in the middle of transition, people who are going to have to trust God, whether they like it or not, during this time of transition. They had been brought from Egypt, ultimately to the promised land, and God said, I will deliver this land to you, but you're going to have to go and you're going to fight these people, and you're going to have to trust me while you're there. By the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, which immediately precedes the book of 1 Samuel, it said the people had no king and did what was right in their own eyes. 
they've had to learn some valuable lessons, especially about trusting the Lord in times of leadership transition. And I want to talk about this morning, this subject of remembrance. And I want to walk through this passage that we just read. And we see that, first of all, that God's people repent, then triumph, then are called to remember. And then we'll talk about three important reasons to celebrate the past. Three important reasons there at the end to celebrate the past. So let's start out at the beginning now, that God's people repented. We spent some time last week talking about the need for wholehearted repentance. Now, God's people had been prepared to repent. They thought they could use the ark as a lucky rabbit's foot, and it went, didn't go well <coughs> by the Philistines. So now we see something else happening. They'd gotten rid of their idols, committed themselves to God, and served them. And then we see Samuel start to speak in verse 5. It says, Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord, and Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, what's going on here? What's this pouring out water business? That operated similarly to a fast. In other words, the people were so serious about their commitment to God and their repentance that they said, Lord, as a sign of this, we are going to pour out that which sustains our life, water itself. Same way with fasting. For a time, we are going to not eat, Lord, to demonstrate that, yes, we know that ultimately we need this to survive, but because of our dedication to you for a time, we're going to show you and acknowledge to you the seriousness with which we're taking this repentance. So it was this symbolic confession that went alongside their true heartfelt confession. And they admitted they had sinned against the Lord. See, from time to time, we have to do this. We need to recognize the sin as God shows it to us, and we've got to repent of that sin as God shows it to us. But it's not always immediately uh, made uh, clear to us the sins that we have, or, to be honest, maybe sometimes we just don't want to acknowledge that it's there. C.S. Lewis has this illustration that he uses uh, regarding sins in the heart. He says it's kind of like having rats in your basement. And he said, if you want to know, if you suspect that there are rats in your basement, he said, you may go down to the door and proclaim out loud, rats, I think you may be in there. And then reach down to the doorknob and jiggle it a little bit. And then slowly open the door reach in, turn on the light. He said, sure enough, you probably won't see any rats. And you may be tempted to think, well, I have no rats in my basement. But he said, this is not how you find rats in the basement. If you want to find rats in the basement, you've got to sneak quietly up to that door. And then you slowly grab the knob. And then you jerk it open quickly and you run in and you shine a flashlight and you look around. He said, this is how you go about finding rats in the basement. And he also compares this to how you find those secret sins in the heart. He says this, the excuse for most of my sinful moments that immediately springs to my mind is that the provocation was so sudden and unexpected, I was caught off my guard like a rat who didn't get enough warning. 
Now, that may be an extenuating circumstance as regards those particular acts. They would obviously be worse if they had been deliberate and premeditated. On the other hand, surely what a man does when he has taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of man he is. Surely what pops out before the man has time to put on a disguise as the truth. So what's he saying here? Well, it was because the hammer hit my finger that I blurted out that profanity. Uh, it was because my spouse aggravated me that I responded so angrily and so harshly. It's because of my friend and what they did that I decided I need to take revenge on them. He's saying, no, all of that was already there. It just happened to come out when you got squeezed a little bit. It's like a friend of mine would say, you don't really know what's inside of the tube of toothpaste until you squeeze it. Those are those sins that we need to be repentant of. Don't ignore those sins, those ways you react to things. Oftentimes, that is revealing what is already there inside of us. So we need to repent. We need to keep ourselves, uh, we need to keep a short list of, of things that need repentance before God. That's about turning, by the way. I mentioned that last week. To repent is to turn. Not just to turn away from your sin, but turning towards God. So these people repented. God's people repented. We need to repent. And also we see that God's people triumph. God's people triumph. When we get to verse 7, we see these Philistines. Um, they heard of the Israelite gathering at Mizpah, and they decided they would sort of surprise them. Actually, it happened right while Samuel was sacrificing that lamb. And then we see the, the results in verses 10 and 11. It says, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But what? The Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below this place, Bethkar. The battle was won because these Israelites were willing to humble themselves before God and repent that they'd been chasing other idols. We sinned, Lord. We're turning back to you. And you see all the right ingredients here. Notice what comes before this triumph. You've got humility. You've got repentance. And then you've got this prayer of Samuel. And the Philistines had this belief. Most of those people at that time, the ancient Near East, had this belief that whatever was happening on earth, if there was a battle raging on earth, there was also a battle raging in the heavens simultaneously. And the gods, your gods and their gods were fighting each other as you all were fighting each other here on the earth. So when the thunder came, what was their interpretation? Why were they so afraid? They knew that the God of Israel was against them. And they took off. It would have been a, a bad omen to them that this would have happened. So they ran away scared. Now, when the people acted pridefully and tried to manipulate the ark, it brought destruction, but not now. This humility brought triumph. Now, the corollary to that is pride brings destruction. And when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, first of all, that took a dose of humility, right? You had to admit that you were a sinner, that you needed a Savior. That takes humility. Now, in addition to that, you gain some new enemies, uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
Before you became a Christian, you were walking right along with the world, the flesh, and the devil. That was just how you did things. But now we have something different going on. Now they're against you, and they are vicious enemies. The world is trying to tell you how you need to live and what you need to value. Your flesh is telling you, you should indulge me. I don't care what the Word, the, the word of God tells you to do. And the devil's always scheming, trying to tempt you. But what's happened? Christ has triumphed over all three. He came to the earth, he put on flesh, and he defeated the devil. He's still active, he's still working. There's a warning in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. If my clicker will click it, I think I've done it. Jim, I think I've a dead clicker. Here we go. Okay, we're back. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Humility is a great weapon before your enemies. So God's people are the triumphant over their enemies. God's people are called then to remember what it was that happened. Look at what happens in verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Notice the phrasing there, till now. This Ebenezer, it literally means a stone of help. Uh, Sam explained it very well earlier. It's something that you would put up uh, to, to remind people of this moment. Uh, it's a Hebrew word. It's one of those words that we pronounce in English, like uh, hallelujah means praise the Lord in Hebrew. We transliterate that into English. Uh, Yahweh uh, and Ebenezer. It's a stone of help. We're setting up a stone to show that God helped us here, and, and in this moment. And it serves a dual purpose. First of all, it was going to serve as a reminder to the future generations that God helped with this battle against the Philistines because there's going to be more battles to come. They would need to remember God's faithfulness. It also has a second purpose. It would serve the present generation by driving this benchmark into the ground, reminding them that the victory they won was not by their own strength, it wasn't because of their great military strategy, but because God acted on their behalf. That's why this stone of help was put up. By the way, we do this today in the act of communion. Did you know that? That even though it's not a stone, it's a physical act, we do this when we take communion. Uh, it's a reminder that our salvation was not in our own strength that God himself had to intervene. It's not by our own strategy or actions that we're saved. It's because of the saving and atoning work of Jesus Christ himself. The battle that we celebrate was over the defeat of death itself. And God will be faithful to us just like he's always been faithful in the past. And like the Israelites, we acknowledge that God himself is the one that won the battle and we get to enjoy the triumph by accepting his work on our behalf. So we celebrate God's faithfulness when we take communion. So then practically, um, how do we celebrate the past? I'm going to bring up three important reasons that we celebrate God's past work. And first of all, um, it's to spur questions in our children. It's to spur questions from our children. Repeatedly in the history of Israel, they set up these stones 
Jacob set up a stone at Bethel. Moses erected 12 stones, 12 pillars to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Joshua had used 12 stones when the people of Israel came to the Jordan River. They didn't know how they were going to pass over it. God stopped the river from flowing and they laid the stones in the riverbed. And concerning this, Joshua told the people, and Joshua, this is from chapter 9, verse 21. He said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. Why did God do this? Look at verse 24. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. It was important that the Jewish parents indoctrinate their children in the truth. That God is mightier than any problem you're going to face. So when we have communion, I hope families talk about it. I hope they talk about the purpose of it. I hope kids ask questions as to why it is we do this thing called communion. Uh, and to remember what it took to be forgiven of our sins. That God himself had to become a man, had to come to earth. He had to be tortured to death. And that was what it took for us to be forgiven. His body was broken, his blood was spilled to pay the penalty of our sins. And because of that, see, your sins are never going to be held against you. You can trust God. So it spurs children to questions. And then secondly, it prevents wandering. It prevents wandering. Samuel said to set that stone of help up. And then what he said in verse 12, till now the Lord has helped us. Till now. This is not going to be the end of the story. There's going to be plenty of traps and snares that these Israelites are going to have to walk through. And there's going to be a lot of fear. And they're going to actually repeatedly turn to other gods instead of the one true God. The stone was to remind them that Yahweh was their Lord, that he was the one true God. There's a line from the song that we sang this morning, Come Thou Fount, that says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I am probably one of the worst wanderers among us today. And I can wander in so many ways. My mind will wander in times of prayer, uh, my emotions can wander. I desire things and want things God doesn't want for me. And you know, in times, we can even physically wander. We can wander away from the community of God, somehow live under the delusion that we don't need this community. This is one of the beautiful aspects of communion. When we take communion, uh, we're involved in a physical way You've got to be thinking about what you're doing. And now it's even harder because you've got to peel these layers off the top of that cup to get to it. But even as you're peeling those layers off the top and you're scared it's going to squirt on you, you can be thinking about the purpose of it. You can be focused because this life of ours takes focus. And we really have to live with this attitude of repentance, always ready to turn back to God because we are prone to wander. That's why we take communion. We take it so we never, ever forget what it is that God has done 
for us. We are prone to wander, and that brings us to this third reason we celebrate the past, and that is to rest in God's faithfulness. To rest in God's faithfulness. The Israelites desperately needed to find rest. You can imagine what it had been to, to have been a six, seven-year-old living at this time, seeing the wars, walking to a river. How are we going to get across it? Walking to the Red Sea. How are we going to get across it? Nine, 10, 11 years old. How is this thing going to work out? Parents trying to comfort their kids in these moments. And God says, you can rest in me. As a matter of fact, I'm the only place you're going to truly find rest. That was, this was to give them peace that God was sovereignly in control. That's the kind of rest we need. We need to find rest in a loving Father that always cares for His children. So let me ask you something. What do you need rest from this morning? Is it the coronavirus? Is it an election coming up, wondering, how's this whole thing going to go? Is it joblessness? Because God says, you can bring it all to me, and you can cast all your cares upon me, and I'm the only one that knows how to do anything with it anyway. There's a great purpose God has in all of the things that are happening but it's difficult to see. There's a wonderful quote by Alan Redpath talking about God's perfect purposes and His will. Even when we don't understand it, he says this, There is nothing, no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until, first of all, it's gone past God and past Christ right through to me. And if it has come that far, it has come with a great purpose, which I may not understand at the moment, but as I refuse to become panicky... As I lift up my eyes to him and accept it as coming from the throne of God for some great purpose of blessing to my own heart, no sorrow will ever disturb me, no trial will ever disarm me, no circumstance will cause me to fret, for I shall rest in the joy of what my Lord is. This is important for us to remember. Because we're going to need to remember this regardless of what may come our way. So I want to summarize all of this by saying, remember what God has done in the past to persevere through the present. Remember what God has done in the past to be able to persevere in the present, no matter what it may be. Um, I want to close with this story. This is uh, just outside of Kyrgyzstan. There's a place called Ata Bayit. And there are these the grant study shouldn't be there. Just ignore that. Beside, behind it, it says uh, 1916. And there's three monuments that sit on this hill in Kyrgyzstan. And uh, these are huge monuments that are built to commemorate national... Typically, the monuments are built for national victories to commemorate them. But this was built in particular as a magnificent defeat. And there were three heartbreaking defeats among these people that are commemorated on top of this hill. Um, there's a monument to the defeat of 1916 when Tsar Nicholas decreed that all of the men would be constrict, cons, uh, conscripted to fight in the army in World War I against the Russians, or I'm sorry, by the Russians to fight in the war. And then there's a second monument uh, that remembers 1938 when, the, when at the personal instruction of Joseph Stalin, 137 leading citizens 
Writers, teachers, artists, and politicians were rounded up and led up those hills to be murdered. Then there's a third monument from 2010 when 84 young people uh, were lost in a single day. They were murdered for standing in the way of freedom. Now, there's only one, there's only pain and defeat on top of that mountain. That's what all of these monuments signify. But see, they consider these to be magnificent defeats because no matter the oppression of their worst enemies and the tears of these painful tragedies, they're doing well today. And these Kurzic people are thriving. And one man said this. They said, sometimes there are defeats so magnificent that they simply must be memorialized. And every Christian understands this. On the foothills just outside of another great city, there's another site remembered with many tears and a monument to, the, to unthinkable justice. And while it would be impossible to remember that place without being moved by its terrible tragedy, we remember it because of something so magnificent in that tragedy. On that terrible hill, by his wounds, we were healed. On that terrible hill, through his cross, we are saved. And on that terrible hill, death may have won the day, but life everlasting secured an unbreakable victory. So the people of Kyrgyzstan may have these monuments on a hill that they accept death was necessary for us to be who we are today. We accept that hill called Calvary. And because of that death, we can have victory today. Please pray with me. Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts now as we go to this time of communion. God, this is an Ebenezer that you yourself told us to participate in. This act through which, Lord, we remember that you defeated death itself, that no matter what this world may bring, no matter what kind of leaders we may have, no, no matter what kind of lies our culture may be pushing at us, that you overcame the world, that you overcame death, and that we look forward to a time where we will enjoy all eternity with you. Lord, I pray as we take the elements today, the bread and the juice, God, I pray that we would not forget that we can rest because of what you have done, Lord Jesus, that you have fought and won the battle and we get to enjoy the triumph. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning, as the uh, ushers come forward and pass out the the cups, uh, I would ask that you think about these stones of remembrance. Because although this is not a stone, this is a time of remembrance. We remember the past, and we think about what it took to accomplish the rest that we can now enjoy. It also looks at the present, and we have communion with God and each other because of what it was Jesus Christ has done. It also looks to the future. It looks to the future because this is a small picture of a meal that we are all going to take together in heaven with those who have died and gone before us who are in the Lord. We do ask that uh, only those who have trusted